This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to our interview with Ilman. I just sort of did it because I loved doing it. And so that was that was my driving force. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this, and if it doesn't work, fine. And, and, and really, it was like this fearlessness that I didn't know I had back then. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pop bless everybody and welcome to another episode of Silent Giants a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is legendary music producer Ill Mind. Ill Mind is produced for and some amazing artists like Kanye West, Dr. Dre, Drake, J. Cole, The Carters, Ariana Grande, and countless others. He's also the host of the Blab Chat podcast, which I'm a huge fan of, and will also have Ill Mind as a guest on my other show, OPP, to discuss all things podcasting very soon. He stopped by my bedside apartment, and we got to chop it up about his upbringing in Newark. We discussed Filipino culture, how he got into music for the first time. He details the journey of his career, lessons he's learned along the way, and so much more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the producer, podcaster, my friend, the silent giant, Bill Mine. Okay, now you should hear. I got you. That's cool. Boom. That's cool. What's up, Bill Mine? How you good, doing, man. dog? What's good, man? It's good to be here. Dude, it's good to uh, have you by the crib. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, we were just talking earlier before this. Uh, you know, we've both been in Brooklyn for a while. We've seen it change. Yeah. This this place is a mansion compared to <laughs> other other places I've seen. So so good shit, man. On on this place, this Dude, place you know, is really good. The thing is, this place it, it's like um it's like hood luxury. Yeah. But the bay window sold me. Deal breaker. Deal breaker. And the view. The view's and great. And the view. Like, yeah. it was a complete deal breaker. So, And the um, for all of you New Yorkers that are listening, you know what I'm talking about. The street cleaning, opposite side parking, not too bad right now. No, not too bad. There's so many spaces. Well, you know, it, well, it actually came like 30 minutes before you got here, uh-huh. which was a blessing. Because I was yeah. like, yo, this was like during the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. So it was like perfect timing, man. Yeah. In, insane, man. So first, shout out to Jared Evan, man. Yeah, who, shout out to my who, man, Jared. Who made this interview possible. Yes, yes. Like, he is the illest. That's my guy right there. One of my favorite artists, honestly. I, I you know, I met him in two thousand nine when he was an intern. Wow, at Fader, at Fader. Fader magazine. 
and uh and then i caught wayne that he was an artist and heard his music i was blown away and uh, obviously you know him so you know his story but yeah, shout, yeah. shout to jared man for 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 sticking with it and and just you know it's just inevitable for him man he's just super talented super talented yeah. dude and also too just to meet like so many like, he's such a genuine person yeah you know what really i mean it just is. feels like someone's going to be at your wedding you know i have this this uh quote with a friend of mine, Chuck, where we say, like, I like to work with people that are going to be at my wedding. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a good way to put it. Um, just because it just it's more than just work. It's, yeah. it's a heart thing. Totally. You know? I mean, but isn't that what the music industry is, though? When you really think about it, it's an industry of people, and you want to work with people that you enjoy working with. Totally. Right? And, you know, that's I think that's true for non-creatives as well. Totally. You know, like, on the, I'm sure people that you... I mean, we obviously just met, but, you know, people that you... Uh, interview on your podcast or or interact with i'm sure you have some type of admiration but also too um you know you would never invite someone here that you think would be uh oh, a hassle cool. to deal with or not <laughs> cool you know um so yeah you, you're definitely right about that well i always think to be a creative you have to kind of being a good person is, is just as important as your talent yeah. you know what i mean for you to be a successful person especially in, in today's era where you actually have options of what you can listen to more than ever. Yep. You know what I mean? Or who you could work with more than ever. And people are at your disposal more than ever in human history. Mm-hmm. Like being a good person is even of more value. <laughs> I mean, it's the number one value. I talk about this on my YouTube all the time and my podcast. It's like, you know, there's opportunities that I've gotten where I knew that there were other producers that probably would have done just as good of a job or even a better job than me. But I got the opportunity because of my relationship mm-hmm. with the, the the button pushers, I call them. Yeah. And because the button pusher likes me as a person and knows I'm easy to deal with, hopefully I am, knock on wood, <laughs> um, I'll just put it out there, but um, they chose me for the opportunity, you know, uh, as opposed to the millions of other producers. And so you're right. I mean, I think the relationship supersedes really everything else in terms of like if you're trying to be a successful music producer or just musician in general right where does your character come from um i don't know man i i guess i guess it's part of it is is the way i was raised you know my parents my parents are um immigrants from the philippines so you know i'm first generation so i was born in america and i think it, you know some of it's my dna i think you know filipino people are very they know what it's like to have literally nothing you know like my parents are from a, a small cluster of islands in the pacific uh with you know basically no economy and just like living off the land and poverty running rampant and you know and, and like any third world country and they you know, acquired an education and came to America for opportunity. And for my parents' generation, it was, you go to school, you become a nurse or a doctor or something. You come to America and try and pursue the American dream. You have kids, you do that. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was very, that was a big part of my character. So it was not only music, but it was also a lot of the uh, fundamentals uh, of, uh, you know, just just being humble and knowing where you come from. You know, I learned all that stuff, I guess, from my parents because they had nothing when they were growing up. So, you know, I know what it's like. And so, you know, I I guess that's a big part of my character as well. But also to just, like you said, being a good person, like there's no reason to, 
be a dick. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right. like so. Yeah, you know, I was uh, my best friend. His name is Lorenzo Diggia. He's a film director, mm-hmm. uh, Filipino as well. Nice. Um, but I always joke with him, like, "Dog, you black." You yeah, I mean? yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I'm from I'm from Virginia. Yeah, and and the, so I'm from Richmond, which is the you know the capital. Yeah. But towards Tidewater is a large Filipino population. Totally. And the culture, black culture and Filipino culture, has a strong correlation Very between similar. the two. But why is that correlation there? So, we, f- first of all, you're one thousand percent right. You know, we Filipinos, I always say, uh, we are the blacks of the Asians. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you 100%. know, um. And there's multiple reasons. And shout out to my man, Joe Coy. I don't know if you're familiar with Joe Coy. He's a, an, um, he's a good friend of mine. Amazing, amazing Filipino comedian. He just dropped um, his, his uh, I think, believe, third Netflix special yesterday. So anyway, um, he also talks about this too. But, you know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, f- 500 years ago, I think it was like 500 years ago, or no, the 1800s, actually, sorry, um, the Spaniards um invaded the philippines and so um we're actually celebrating philippine independence day this weekend um for acquiring you know gaining our independence from that time and so um you know a lot of spanish culture was injected into filipino culture and so a lot of our last names are spanish you know i happen to have a filipino last name but i guarantee you 90 percent of the filipinos you you know out there have spanish last names also the food, the culture, you know, um, it, it's very, we're very sort of like a hybrid uh, uh, people. We're very different from uh, all the other sort of Asian uh, nationalities. And, you know, our language, which is uh, Tagalog, um, is very similar to Spanish, you know, certain words and stuff like that. So, yeah, we definitely have, not to discredit other, obviously, right. other uh, uh you know, Asian cultures, we're all very unique and amazing in our own way. But but you're right. I do th- uh, believe that, you know, the Filipinos are definitely, we got a little bit of, you know what I mean? We got a little bit of that swag, you know what yeah, I'm saying? And, and also, too, there's a, um, there's a culture there that really embraces creativity. Yes. Like, really embraces the the element of striking out on your own and being creative in your field or in your, in your profession. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is there a reason why that is? Were your, were your parents very supportive of yeah. you getting into music? My dad was a musician. You know, I lost him in 2010, but he played guitar. He was in bands. I remember growing up, he would have um, he would have gigs every weekend, and I would go with him and like be the roadie and and just like watch him in the band like play and stuff. And so, music was always a big, a really big part of my upbringing. And it, it's that's true for a lot of Filipinos. You know, if you're a Filipino, you have an uncle or a father or someone who either plays guitar or sings or is in a band or does something music related. And so I think a sort of stereotype of Filipino people that a lot of people don't know about is we love, there's three things we love. We love music, we love basketball, and we love food. Pork specifically. Okay. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to all the vegans out there, but <laughs> we fucks with pork heavy. Um, but, uh, you know, and so I think that on top of also the thing that sets us apart from other um, Asian, um, from other Asians is that we're English speaking. So, you know, when you grow up in the Philippines, you're required to learn English. And so, you know, if, if you, if you're American and, and you go to the Philippines, you really won't have much of an issue with the language barrier because as long as you're in, you know, obviously the bigger cities or even the smaller um, outskirts of the Philippines, pretty much everyone speaks English as well. 
And so that on top of the art thing, like you said, you know, Filipinos are really, um, something about music and art is really just part of our DNA as well. So um, we're very intrigued by that. And so, of course, American culture and just art culture in general is going to rub off on us. And, you know, we try to um, express that in the best way possible. So you mentioned your father uh, played guitar as a musician. Mm -hmm. What about your mother? Uh, my mom was a nurse. Surprise, okay. surprise. Um, so, uh, yeah, she was a nurse and, and she worked hard, man. She, you know, my dad was, I don't want to say a struggling musician, but he definitely wasn't like huge by any means, but he was, you know, doing his thing and definitely, um, you know, took his passion and created uh, a scenario for himself to be able to help his wife and, and us and, and his kids, you know, and, uh, you know, so my mom worked, I just remember her, she was working like 16 hours a day, you know, just like nurse, like my whole childhood, you know, she was just always working, always working. And so, um, definitely thankful for, for her coming here. And you got to think too, like she moved to America from the Philippines in her early twenties. I want to say like 21 or something. And you can't imagine like how overwhelming that must've been for her, you know, third world country coming to America. You're in your early twenties, you're a nurse. We, you know, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which is like the hood. <laughs> so bought an, got an apartment in the hood, met another guy, had some kids, you know, I mean, when you go back and look at it, you, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a rough time back then and she made it happen. So I, you know, I, I love my mom for that and my dad. You know what? I, in, in every episode of Silent Giants, I've had the pleasure of interviewing some amazing people who've achieved amazing things in their career and their life. And there's always been, I would say 98% of the people that I've interviewed have a common thread. Mm. And I like to tell people that success is not some thing that we just pick off of a tree. It's not like some, like an apple. You right. know what I mean? It's a recipe, right? It's, it's a cocktail that's been I agree. put together. But I always say that what makes, um, what I've seen as a common trend amongst great people that your parents, um, which are who your parents are and where you're from yes. really dictate, Yeah, you know, cause you've obviously learned and had a leg up in music. Um, but also too being close to the New York area, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At a time where artists we're, we're we're here in a here in New York City. You know what I mean, in a very mm -hmm. populous area. You know uh, how how did being in this area shape you and, and help you get into your career? Oh man, it was everything. You know, I was I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, Newark, New Jersey, and um, and then most of my childhood I was in Bloomfield, New Jersey, which was like the town over. And I just remember grinding in when I got into music. I was grinding in Jersey, but I came to New York. A lot, you know. How'd you get into music? So, um, my so when I fell in love, I hate the typical. I fell in love with hip hop, but I really did. Um, when I was growing up, I you know my dad played every type of music. I mean, disco, soul, you know, Stevie, MJ, even like classic rock music. He was just into a lot of different kind of music. And when I started getting into hip hop, um, I started to become curious about. The production side you know who's making these beats who's doing the drums what are where are these jazz samples coming from you know who's pete rock who's jay dilla who's manny fresh who so my curiosity turned into uh, a passion you know and and that passion sort of turned into a habit you know i started to mimic these guys and i was just so 
curious about how music was being made and who was doing it and what type of equipment they were using. I, I just injected all of my energy and interest into trying to become someone who can do that too. And I still pursue that to this day. You know, I'm still learning every day. And so I, I think for me, it started with the curiosity turned into a passion. And then I think from that, from that passion turning to, into a habit, I was able to get my 10,000 hours in, you know, I mean, I'm probably up to like 30,000 hours or something. I don't know. But, you know, you, you turn that into something that's just so much a part of you that I guess I eventually became that thing. You know, it's like, it almost turns into, uh, you know, a daily routine. Like you, I, wake up, I breathe air, I take a shower, I eat food, I drink water, I make music. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's all sort of in the same category. So um, that's sort of how I got into it. Uh, was there ever the initial feeling of wanting to be um, on the mic and, and be the frontal talent ever? Or did you just naturally gravitate towards being behind the scenes? Um, I rapped when I was in high school, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I, I messed around with it, but uh, I didn't love it enough to keep doing it. So... You know, my my uh, passion sort of stuck with being the guy behind the scenes, right? But then when I started to really sort of like show my face and, and be more active in the community, that's when I also learned that I also have a passion for being around other creative people, you know, and like we talked about earlier, having a podcast, yeah. having a voice, talking about creative stuff, business stuff. Um being able to create stuff from scratch, that's sort of like my thing, you know? And so that's what sort of birthed uh, the drum kit business and um, the podcast and past the aux and now YouTube, you know, all that stuff is like fairly recent. Um, but I, I learned that about myself. So what, what was it that you got a natural um, kind of like a, a, a better reaction from folks from your production versus your rapping that kind of persuade you? Or was it kind of a natural inner Thing. It was an inner thing. I, I, you know what? I, I never wanted to be a rapper. I never tried to be a rapper. The only time I tried was when I recorded myself rapping in my closet when I was in high school. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much just like being a kid fucking around. But I never decided that I wanted to rap or wanted to sing. You know, I, I early on, I sort of decided that I was a music producer um, without even really knowing I was deciding that like making a decision, you know, I think that was like super um, crucial for me too early on was like, you know, <clears throat> deciding on doing something without knowing I was deciding on doing it. You know, it's like, I think that's super, super crucial. That was crucial for me. What, was there like a, a groundbreaking kind of light bulb moment where you were like, oh yeah, I'm sticking with this. And like, I love this. You know what? <laughs> I never really had a light bulb moment. To me, it was uh, a series of stuff I was doing that I enjoyed doing, right? And so when I jumped into being curious about making music and then I eventually purchased my first like beat machine and computer and DAW and Pro Tools and I started getting into that, I, I pursued it because it was fun. I pursued it because it was addicting, you know, to create something from scratch. And 
I knew I was getting better. I knew that every time I made a beat or every time I played an instrument, I knew that I got better and better and better and better. And that feeling was addicting and it still is addicting. You know, you get sort of this like high off of the fact that you can create a song. I can create a song a week from now and it could be my biggest hit or I can create something later on tonight and I'll, it'll make me a better producer. It's like that, that feeling of growth. Right. And so those were the factors that um, were crucial for me. So I don't, I don't think there was like a specific light bulb moment. I think I, early on, I was just like, this is what I love doing. If I become successful, fine. If I don't, so be it. But I know I love doing this and I'm going to keep doing it as long as I'm able to, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, yeah. How did it kind of turn into, because did you have any type of career interest before? Uh, I did. But what was I your did. other? Video games, okay. computers. You know, I went to school for like a year to do um, like computer science, you know, just like programming and stuff. For a moment, I thought that I would be like a video game designer or yeah. like a programmer of some sort, probably develop. Like if I didn't do music, I'd probably be in like app development or something or something music related. So I knew I liked that, but uh, I did it for a year and I dropped out because I liked music more. So <laughs> were you scared to make that, that jump? Um, no, see, that's the thing. I never felt a sense of like fear or fear of failure. And I guess part of part of that is sort of like when you when you try to analyze that, it's like it's like pretty reckless. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're like, I'm like a kid. My parents are like pressuring me to go to school as good parents should. Right. You know? Meanwhile, I'm in my mom's basement, like playing with my keyboards all day, every day, drop it, you know, uh college dropout. And so yeah, that was from in society's terms, that's super, um, you know, uh, like that's really irresponsible. And so I didn't uh, I didn't think of it as irresponsible. I just sort of did it because I loved doing it. And so that was that was my driving force. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this. And if it doesn't work, fine. And, and, and really, it was like this fearlessness that I didn't know I had back then, you know, cause I really didn't like anything else. I wasn't good at sports. I had friends and I liked hanging out with them, but I liked making music more. <laughs> so, um, I sort of chose music over everything and it became a big part of me. And, and so th there was this fearlessness there that I didn't know I had. And I, and I guess it worked. Were you already making some money with your music? When you when you made that switch over? No. No, it wow. took it took me a while to really create a strategy to start making some money. You know, and you know, my first experience with making money was obviously selling beats. You know, it was $50 here, $25 here, $100 here, and this was before the YouTube beat hustle. Yeah, you know? around what time? This was like mid 2000s, okay. you know. And so that was when I started to really create some momentum. And so I started working with rappers and some people I would work with for free. Some people would pay me a little bit of money to just get by, you know? And uh, that's sort of where it started. And from there, as I started to learn more and more about the business and as becoming an adult, 
I started to um, really be mindful of like the business aspect of it and generating income and royalties and what's a publishing deal. And, and once I started doing that, I started to, um, those areas of my life started to become real, you know, making real money and being able to pay my rent and then eventually moving out of my mom's basement and being independent off of music. And, and it was a tough transition, but, um, the, again, the fearlessness is, I think, what drove me to accomplish that. Like you mentioned strategy as mm-hmm. a key word. How did you know to develop a strategy? Where did that even come from? And how Instinct. did you learn about the music? Instinct. Business? Instinct. No, you know, I didn't have books. We didn't have tutorial videos. Right. I was about to say, this is pre-YouTube. So Pre-YouTube. Right. Instinct. Instinct. It's okay. I'm making music, right? I don't have any money. So how do I make money? Well, the first instinct that I had in my mind was, why am I valuable, right? Like, what type of person would consider me to be a valuable person? Well, if I'm a music producer, who am I producing for? Well, I'm producing for the consumer, right? And they can go buy a CD, but I'm not going to, like, burn a bunch of CDs with instrumentals and, like, try to sell that out my trunk. So the next you know, ideal step from there would be, okay, who can I sell my beats to? Well, I can sell them to rappers. I can sell them to singers. That's my clientele. Those are the people that I need to find and get those people to know who I am so they can pay me, so I can make money. And again, instinct. It was just, okay, so if I can sell beats, then, you know, if I'm making five beats a day, and I'm doing this for 30 days every month, that's about 150 beats a month. And if I sell 100 beats at $50 each, I can make five grand, Okay, right, in one month. So that's how my mind was thinking. It was just, it was, it turned into a numbers thing where it was like, okay, well, if I want to make $3,000 in 30 days, how many beats do I need to sell and how much do I sell them for? Right. And so it, it was a lot of like uh, trial and error. You know, sometimes I would find an artist and they would say, Hey, I love your beats, Ill Mind. Um, how much do you charge? And I would say, You know what? I usually charge $200 per beat. But if you buy five for me right now, I'll give all five to you for $300. So you're doing a bundle. Bundles. Yes. So I was doing bundles, bundles. And every month I would just make just enough to get by wow boom boom boom. and it would it was like living paycheck to paycheck almost you know and so uh you know that in doing that i started to gain confidence in myself um and that also allowed for me to like receive like validation that like wow i am good at this and wow like i could do this for the rest of my life because i'm able to monetize the thing i love doing so if i as long as i keep going my brand will continue to grow. And, and that's exactly, you know, what happened. And, um, you know, fast forward to now, it's it's snowballed into something incredible. So I, I, I purchased your project back in 2011, the Behind the Curtain yes. project. Wow, thank you, man. Yeah. Wow, you it, took all, it back my, for me with my that. my iTunes. Appreciate that. On that phone right there. Crazy. Um, how, did, how did that help change your career? Like being able to oh, man. make beats and then put them out for people to purchase and listen to. <clears throat> a lot of times I listen to instrumentals while I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, like how did that have a big role in, in, in your career? 
So I want to shout out Nature Sounds Records and my man Devin over there. So around that time, I started to acquire a fascination with music producers and people that were like me, right? So the kid in uh, fucking Boise, Idaho or something, you know, who's just like me, you know, making beats and they're in their mom's basement. They're barely getting by maybe, maybe a college dropout or high school dropout even. And so I started to think about other producers and other creatives. And so when I thought about that project, I wanted to do something creative and I wanted to sort of do something that I knew other people wouldn't do. And so I decided to create this instrumental album. And at that point, people were putting out instrumental albums. But in addition to the instrumental album, you also get the audio stems for the project. So I don't know if you noticed, but when you buy the CD, it comes with a download card with a code on it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you when you put the code in and you go to the website, it gives you access to download the stems. So you get all my drum sounds, you get all the synthesizers, the bass sounds, so that came with the project. This was 2011, my Behind the Curtain instrumental project. Right. And so that was like the beginning of this idea of, oh, wow, there's a community of producers and people out there that find value in having access to my instruments and not just the music. So they can take it, they could remix it, they can use my drums for their own production, stuff like that. And so... And the the response to that album was so great that it sort of snowballed into all the stuff that I'm doing now. So like 2011, Behind the Curtain, instrumental CD project that includes all the stems and sounds. I I believe no one has has ever done that prior to that um, in that way, you know, on on an independent label or, or just releasing it like that. And from there, it sparked the idea to put out drum kits. You know, and this was late 2011, early 2012. I released uh, my first drum kit, Blab Kits Volume One, and it was basically like a zip folder of drum sounds that I created. And when you purchase the the kit, you can use it. Other producers can use it in their own music, right? And so it was kind of like sound designing. You know, it was like my own little like digital guitar center almost. And uh, again, that was uh, around the time where no one was doing that. You know, no producers that were on that level were releasing their own drum sounds. Back then it was, you know, fuck you, we're not, I'm not sharing my sounds. Like, these are my sounds, you know? And, you know, of course, back then I had haters, you know, people were like, Ilman's corny for putting his own drum sounds or he's just trying to make money. And, you know, and so I did it because I knew that it would be valuable for producers. As I told myself, you know, my... my How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Favorite producer is Jay Dilla, right? Rest in peace, Dilla. I told myself in 2011, I said, if Jay Dilla were to release an instrumental album and included his drum sounds, or sold, you know, a drum kit with his drum sounds, would I buy it? And how much would I, would I spend? I told myself, number one, fuck yeah, I would buy it. And number two, I told myself I would pay $1,000 for that. I mean, that's pretty steep. But I, I, I told myself I would pay $1,000 just to have access to that. And so when I released my project and my drum kits, I was like, how much would I be willing to spend for an ill mind? you know, uh, drum kit. And I priced it really low, really low. I said, you know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks for 150 sounds. That's, you know, that's less than a dollar per sound, yeah. right? It's super cheap. And, uh, you know, fast forward to the success of that, you know, it just sort of became a standard in the industry. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, it became a thing that I didn't know would become this huge uh, ecosystem, this right. this way for producers to share sounds and generate income. And and it, it's almost like we're uh, recycling our creativity and sharing our sounds together. And it's really impacted music in a big way. And so I'm just really proud to have been able to be part of that movement. So you kind of remind me of like, like the lunch pail producer. Mm. You know what I mean? Tell me more. In terms of sometimes you hear stories, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of producers. And sometimes it's like, yo, you know, I was in this, I was making beats and I put up a song on SoundCloud and then X rapper called me. Or, hey, I was in the studio and then so-and-so walked in and heard my beat. And it had kind of has this like um fairy tale yeah. kind of story right place the, right time thing right type of type of thing but with your career what i'm seeing here is it's a um very much a no a, a very practical way of going about getting to the big dream most if not all of the business side of it was definitely like from the outside looking in like seems pretty practical but a lot of that stuff is at the mercy of the super non-practical so like you know, the I have multiple, multiple stories of right place, right time, you know? But it's funny because I don't necessarily believe in right place, right time, and I don't really believe in luck either. I believe in uh, energy and manifesting and, you know, being in the right headspace to manifest certain things by making better decisions, right? And creating your destiny as opposed to luck and timing and stuff like that. And so I mean, at the end of the day, that's all perspective, right? But there was, for me, definitely, I mean, there's definitely a lot of like, holy shit, what just happened? This is going to change my life, like multiple times over, 
for sure. But, but but do you think that it came that the lunch pail kind of approach to your work led to those moments versus the reverse? Because put it this way, mm. as trends change, that lunch pail mentality doesn't change, right? Mm-hmm. You're still going to advance because of that. But a sound could change or an artist yeah. could say, you know what? I want to go in a different direction creatively, which is totally normal and fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what I'm saying is you, you've been able to build a resiliency that's there. Yeah. Right? Totally. I think, you know, it's funny because I think people that know me are just are so... Um, they They know me from a lot of different things, so I have fans who know my stuff from when I was producing for little brother two thousand six yeah two thousand seven two thousand eight they changed you know? my they changed my life yeah me too um and that was sort of you know me sort of striking a relationship with little brother was one of the early like right place, right time moments. Tell right? me the story of that. For me. And, you know, it, it was really simple. I was really active on the message boards, okplayer.com, undergroundhiphop.com. My boy, his name is Slop. He, I met him on undergroundhiphop.com, producer forum. We got to know each other. He introduced, he sent me some music from this group called Little Brother. And this was before The Listening came out. This was before people knew who Ninth Wonder was super early he's like yo check this song out the song was speed um uh, so he sent me speed and he was like yo check these guys out they're from north carolina i heard it i was like who the fuck are these guys who's rapping who produced this this shit is amazing check it another database i'm shed cropping in this paper chase take the deep rap and clear my database it's afternoon i'm talking shit to my alarm clock because i gotta face this world a capitalistic onslaught don't and I found out that those guys were on the okplayer.com message board. So I created an account and I started being more active on there. And then um, eventually I met, you know, uh, Fonte and Pooh and Ninth. And they eventually heard my music and they were like, yo, Ilman's dope. Let's work. And so um, I started sending them music and then I started to meet the rest of the squad, like Crisis and DJ Flash and all those guys. And um, and we just sort of built this bond. And so that led to me producing a lot of their music, you know, Chitlin Circuit mixtape and the Get Back album. I produced, you know, five records on there. Um, I think at this point I have like 10 to 15 Little Brother songs that I produced over the years. And so that if that never happened, I don't know if the success of my Behind the Curtain uh, instrumental would have happened. You know, I think the sort of underground early adopters who adopted to ill mind in the beginning were the fuel to the the other side stuff sort of seeing success if that makes sense yeah. you know it's like oh yeah i know ill mind from the little brother shit let me go buy this instrumental album or oh shit i love those beats that he produced on the little brother album let me go buy his drum kit you know, and and around that time, that also again evolved to working with G Unit, which was another windfall for me. Um, and that, you know, from there I gained G Unit fans. <clears throat> and then, you know, 2012 working with Kanye uh, and Sky Zoo. Obviously, this whole time I was working with Sky Zoo, so it was a multitude of people that I was working with. And every time I would work with someone new, I would gain a small percentage of their fan base 
Yeah, boom, right. Boom. Little brother. Boom. G Unit. Boom. Sky Zoo. Boom. Uh, you know, boot camp click. Boom. Uh, uh, and then you know Kanye, boom, Cruel Summer, boom, J Cole, Drake, Jay Z, Beyonce, boom, 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 all while doing my podcast and my drum kits and my you know producer appearances and stuff like that. And it's sort of like one feeds the other, right, right. You know what I mean? So it, with, with with the that process <clears throat> taking place, let's say from that that. First, obviously, little brother was like kind of that. That, that was like the first, break. like, okay, yeah, ill mind is like here. Yeah, yeah. At, at this point, are people calling you because of this? The, the yeah, production? yeah. Wow, for sure. Like, yo, ill, I love the shit you're doing with little brother. I'd love for you to send me some stuff, or you know what I mean. That opened the door to artists wanting to work with me, you know, and and uh, that was sort of the beginning of the snowball effect were, were you prepared for that snowball effect i was i was i'll tell you why because for six years straight i was making five beats five to ten beats per day i had thousands of beats ready to go all that stuff you heard on the little brother get back album yeah. which was released in 2008 yeah i want to say yeah a couple of those beats i made in like 04 2003 2004 so a lot some of those beats were like three four five years old and so I had this massive catalog of back catalog of stuff that I could use for the future, and so that's what helped me sort of be prepared for it. Oh, you know? what, what what about on the on the business side? Were you, were you prepared for it too? Hell no, <laughs> <laughs> hell no, dude. I was fucking, I was fucking taking, uh, uh, you know, Western Union cash transfers and and this and like not knowing like i didn't know what the fuck i was doing i was just really winging it you know and but when i eventually got uh, a real attorney and a real accountant and stuff like that i started to to be more responsible with that stuff so early on it was just like a free-for-all you know what i mean yeah okay yeah. okay so how do you uh how do you know okay like at this point i've hit a point where i need an attorney like or i need these other pieces to to make the business happen you know what not not to sound like a cop-out yeah but again instinct instinct but, but, Inst but is it the moment when like yay calls and you're like oh i guess yeah. i should like get an attorney yeah Was yeah it uh, it's funny i i had signed uh my first publishing deal in 2010 and I don't want to throw them under the bus but um in hindsight it was not a good deal for me to sign Right, but I signed it because uh, it felt like a good deal. It sounded like a good deal, and the money that they gave me wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough for me to like not want to say no. And so I took the deal, um, and it really wasn't a good deal, right? It, it wasn't a good deal, and um, but I'm glad I took it because it was a it was a it was a I learned from that. You know, it was a teachable. So experience for me. And um, so, yeah, so I, I did that and I learned from it moving forward. And, um, you know, I think, I think that experience kind of like changed my mentality of like, okay, now you need to like get on your business shit because now there's publishing deals and there's LLCs and there's taxes and all this stuff, you know, business accounts. And so again, you know, I think it was me recognizing something 
and then having the instinct to say, okay, I should probably like try something new and not just like collect cash at a Western Union. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that feels like (laughs) the right way to go when I'm like 45 years old. I probably shouldn't continue to do that. I probably need an LLC. I probably need to look into an accountant. You know, I probably need an attorney. Uh, who knows what they're doing. So, you know, all that, again, all that stuff uh, for me was instinct. Um, and I don't know, I'm really fascinated by like the instinct thing because that that's what drove a lot of my success. Is it just like calling an attorney when you need one, just finding one online and well, saying, hey. When I signed that publishing deal in 2010, I didn't have an attorney and I signed it without one, which was the biggest mistake you can make uh, as someone in the music industry. You never want to sign a contract without an attorney. Wait, of all the things in your instinct that led you to do the right thing, yeah, it, it didn't click to say oh, there's a contract no, here. It was a mistake. It was it was it was a failure. You know, it was, it was a one of the many failures that I experienced uh, coming up. And so, from that experience, I um, w- when I got the placement with Kanye in 2012, that's when I knew. Okay. I need an attorney. I can't just like sign this contract. You know, if if they send me one, I need to have some representation. And so at that time, I, uh, uh, a a friend of mine recommended an attorney that, that would be willing to help me with that deal. And they, they helped me with it and it, everything worked out really well. Um, but you know, again, looking back, you know, instinct again. And and the funny thing about instinct is you're you're not going to be right. 100% 100% of the time. I mean, no one ever really is. Um, but there's something to be said about trusting your instinct and being open to making a bad decision. Because I think the bad decisions and the failures that you experience are teachable, crucial, teachable moments for you moving forward. I'll give an example. That publishing deal that I signed in 2010 with no attorney, that yeah. was like a bad deal that I shouldn't have signed. That company recently, I don't want to say recently, and I also don't want to name names, but they recently were bought out by another company. Okay. And the company that bought them out is the same company that I'm currently signed to. Okay. So I was able to absorb my entire old catalog and now I own everything. Got it. Oh, wow. Wow. So like life came full circle. Full circle. On that deal. Yes. Wow. Wow. And if I had gotten an attorney for that deal, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have the attorney that I have today, who's, his name is Vinny Kumar. He's amazing attorney. He was the one, the one responsible for helping me get out of my old publishing deal and also helped to curate the absorption of my old catalog into new catalog. So I, so I'm in a much better place now as opposed to if I were to have an attorney back then, I probably wouldn't have Vinny. I probably maybe would still be with the same person and I probably wouldn't be owning all of my catalog at that point. Who knows where my career would be, right? right? So again, sometimes those failures are, are blessings and, and I don't think you could create enough opportunities to fail if you're not running off instinct. You know what I mean? Because if you're, if I'm 100% overly calculated about everything, 
and I'm trying to avoid failure and avoid failure, avoid, 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 I'm literally blocking my future blessings because every everything is just become everything becomes safe. Everything is just like here, here, a little bit here, a little bit here. And then 10 years go by and you're like, there's no progress, right? So when you run off of instinct, you're making huge, bold decisions that seem like they're fucked up at the moment, but then eventually become, you know, for every five failures, one of those failures becomes a life-changing trajectory for the future. Wow. Yeah. Um, What was it like working with someone like a Kanye West or Beyonce and, you know, I would imagine I would be really nervous. Well, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't actually in the studio with Jay and Beyonce yeah. um, for the Carter's album um, when, when we did that. But every time I'm in the studio with a superstar, f- what worked for me early on was I would remind myself that there's a reason why I'm there, right? I could be there and it could be, megastar here and then a songwriter here and an engineer here and i look at everyone i'm like everyone in this room is here at this moment for a reason and they were called in to be in there their want their their presence is uh valuable at that moment and when i remind myself of that when i'm in these scenarios um everything is just easier because I'm like, yeah, I deserve to be here. I'm the producer. Let me be the producer, right? Let me be the team player that I was called here to be. And um, that helps for me, you know? Uh, Then all the nerves sort of go away and the nervousness of trying to be perfect and being overwhelmed with, oh my God, this superstar is right here. Like Dr. Dre is like, like I could reach and like touch his shoulder. Oh my God, Dr. Dre, you know, it's like, all that stuff sort of goes away. And then after you're done, you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you're like, was I just in the fucking studio with Dr. J? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's when it s- sinks in later on. So one of my favorite songs from J. Cole is Love Yours. Yes. And which is an amazing track. Thank you. Um, and you posted on Instagram his performance where he dedicated to Nipsey. You know, what does it feel like to have a beat that hits an artist and that song which becomes a song gets performed in front of thousands of people but then to have it represent something that you didn't even know when you made that beat that it would represent it first of all it's it's surreal um but it's also a reminder that Number one, anything is possible. And number two, there's one there's a one hundred percent chance that there are higher energies that are involved in allowing for something like that to happen. I mean, you hit it right on the nose. It was probably some random time in 2013. I was literally 
in my little studio at home making a beat. I was probably in my boxers. It was probably like <laughs> 2 a.m. And I made that beat in like 20 minutes. And that night I remember making like five or six beats. So it was one of those just like, this beat is really great. I feel it. I love it. I think it'll be special, but let me keep going. Let me do more. And uh, I didn't think or know that it would become Love Yours. I didn't know it would be J. Cole. I didn't know that in 2019, it would be a Nipsey Hustle dedication from J. Cole live in front of tens of thousands of people. So you can't really foresee that stuff. So that just confirms to me that there's, you know, higher sort of energies that are that are uh, playing a role in all of this stuff. So I'm just grateful at the end of the day. When you have so many tracks that you're, you're making over a course of time, um, when you go to meet with an artist or an artist calls you, do you kind of go through your catalog and then you present them? How are they able to pick the beats typically? What's that process like? Everyone works different. Sometimes you go in a room and you just start playing stuff and then they'll pick a few. Sometimes you make something from scratch. Sometimes, uh, you know, you make something at home and you email it, you know, uh, it's super random. It's super random. But those three are sort of like the top most common ways that it happens, you know, pretty standard, pretty like obvious. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, before we wrap up this episode of silent giants, um, I asked every person who have, have interviewed, you know, first let me take it back. I had the pleasure. This, this question was spawned from, I, did, I interviewed Michael Jackson's engineer, Bruce Wedeen, and I flew down to Florida and went to his home and saw the Grammy for Thriller. And I saw insane, like the master copy of like Bad or the master copy of Thriller or saw the Thriller microphone. And I saw all the Grammys on the wall for all the things he's produced uh, or engineered mm-hmm. over the course of his career. And I was uh, sitting there in his room. Um, talking with him and looking over all these awards, I kept thinking to myself, like, wow, you missed a lot of things <laughs> like in life. Like this right. is life. Like yeah. life is these things on the wall. <clears throat> and you've sacrificed so much to achieve what you've achieved. I think we have such this perception of greatness or success as this, like I mentioned earlier, it's just like random outlier, or a fruit off of a tree, and that person became successful. But it's a lot of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um Ilman, what have you sacrificed to to be great? Um, well, I think I think from the outside looking in, I probably sacrificed the stuff that's typically pretty valuable to human beings coming up. Like I sacrificed uh, you know, going out and having fun in my early 20s. Um, being being uh, in my early 20s and 20s, doing what 20-year-olds do, you know, going out, dating, uh, experiencing different things in life outside of just, like, making music. Um, probably sacrificed certain relationships that I have or don't have. But it's it's so, man, my brain works in such crazy ways because, you know, when I go back into the past and I think about, like, what did I sacrifice? Um, 
there's a lot there's probably a lot of sacrificing that I did, but it just didn't feel like I was sacrificing stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right? And I think in the moment I didn't realize I was sacrificing stuff because I was in a place of ultimate ultimate happiness. And I'm I'm just as happy as I was in 2004 in my mom's basement as I am now, despite all of the m- major success that I've been able to accomplish so far in my career. I'm equally as happy because I'm still doing the thing that I always wanted to do and always loved to do, which is make music, right? And so it's 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 really hard for me to recognize what I've sacrificed because you know, it's just it's a really um it's a really deep rabbit hole that you can get down. <laughs> you know? Like yeah, cuz yeah. once you think sacrifice and then you think regret and then you think what what would my life be like if I never sacrificed X, Y, and Z. And there's a million combinations you can think of in your mind. But if one little thing changed, then that could have created like this cascade of events that would have changed the trajectory of where I am today. You know what I mean? So I I don't regret really any of that stuff. To me, it's like ultimate happiness in every moment, right? It's like when I wake up in the morning, I think, how can I maximize joy to the highest level in the next 24 hours? What can I do today specifically, right? And that, for me, that helps me not to get into like a deep tangent or anything, but no. that, that for me, that helps me to be in the present moment and not think too much about the future or the past or comparing myself to other people. It's what can I do today? to maximize joy and um the sum total of that usually adds up to something good after a certain amount of time so well well, ill mind dude it's such a pleasure having you on thank you so much man like great convo you're a great dude and i'm a big fan of your work thank you and always you know tell folks too thank you so much for contributing to popular culture you know it takes so much to take something that comes from your head and your heart to then take your hands to make something that we all get to consume and enjoy. And Thank you, man. I really appreciate you. Thank you, man. Shout out to you guys who are listening, man. Make sure you subscribe. Subscribe, dog. To my news podcast, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but man, thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Silent Giants and to our special guest, music producer, Bill Mott. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird, and I want to send a special thank you to our silent giant and friend of the podcast, Jared Evan, for making this interview possible. Lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, OPP with Corey Cambridge. Other people's podcast is the TRL of podcasting. Every week, we interview America's top podcasters to learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I'll find the link for you in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pop bless y'all. Till next time.